All aboard the Illinois Suffrage Special, lone male to accompany 150 women to Washington, D.C. 65 Illinois women paying $2,000 each to ride the train to D.C. to march for a woman's right to vote. They're calling it the Suffrage Special, and it's leaving Chicago Union Station any minute now. The Suffs want to make double sure the President's got his marching orders on women's rights. They're calling themselves the Army of the Middle West. And they're not kidding. Here they come now, marching up Jackson Street from the Art Institute. Every suffragette who's anyone in this city, hell in this whole state, is catching that train. At the moment, they're taking votes among themselves. Everything from who's the best educated among them to who's the best speaker. That's Virginia Brooks, the Joan of Arc of South Chicago, acting as master of ceremonies. The ballots are in. Miss Belle Squire has been voted our most militant suffragette. And who among you would deny the charming Miss Brooks here your vote for our best reformer? Belle Squire's got suffrage in her blood. She's a spinster music teacher who lives with her mother and four brothers on the south side, down near Perry Street. You see Miss Squire walking up Wabash in her long dress, and you think she's just some uppity, highbrow, downtown for afternoon tea. You'd be dead wrong. She may teach piano for a living, but if you come between that sweet lady and a woman's right to vote, you're going to get yourself knocked out of tune. You better hustle, Mrs. Barnett, unless you want to walk to Washington. That's Ida B. Wells Barnett. She's toured all around England, telling folks about America's shameful history of denying its African-American citizens their God-given right to vote. I vote for Ida Wells as bravest soul aboard the suffrage special. I guess a man's vote shouldn't rightly count on a woman-only train. All aboard the Illinois suffrage special, direct to our nation's capital, this train is bound. Washington. But we've got ours right here on a moving Pullman car. Let's give a hand to today's first speaker, the president of the No Vote, No Tax League of Chicago, Belle Squire, speaking on what it means to be a revolutionary woman. In 1776, while her husband John was in the Continental Congress, Abigail Adams wrote him, Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention are not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound to any laws in which we have no voice nor representation. So I say to you now, sister suffragists, if taxation without representation was tyranny in 1775, it is tyranny today. If no man was good enough to govern another without that other's consent, then no men are good enough to govern women without their consent today. If you will permit me, I would like to read you a letter I wrote recently to Mr. Harry A. Lewis, Cook County Attorney, on the matter of my property taxes. It is my declaration of rights. Sir, as head of her family, my mother has been assessed for personal property taxes. 
I protest the double insult of being classed among the criminals, idiots, and incompetents of the state of Illinois by the government under I was born and live. And then, being forced by law to help support by my labor that government that so humiliates me. For this reason, I absolutely refuse to pay your tax bill. Indeed, I call for the support of 1,000 fearless women brave enough to refuse on moral or patriotic grounds to pay their personal taxes. I refuse any longer to submit to that form of tyranny. Folks out east say Chicago men are hard-nosed. Let me tell you, Chicago women are tough as nails. Everybody's heard of Jane Addams over at Hull House and Mrs. Frances Willard, the dean of women up in Evanston. But Bell Squire's gotta be our best kept secret, suffragist-wise. How tough is she? Let me clue you in. She once threatened to sue the Republican Party for one million dollars for what she called a breach of promise to American women. County Treasurer William O'Connell declared yesterday the law would be enforced, and Miss Squire repeated her declaration that no tax would be paid by her. Mr. O'Connell has the alternative of backing up a wagon to Miss Squire's residence and taking her property by storm against the attack of the militant suffragette. My editor down at the Trib told me to put that militant suffragette bit into the copy. I guess the prospect of women marching in the streets has got Chicago men buying newspapers like never before. It's like reading about a flood or a fire or one of our winter storms blowing in over Lake Michigan. Some natural calamity bearing down on them that they're powerless to stop. Woman defiant to tax assessor. Bell Squire refuses to list her personal property, demands woman's vote first. Miss Bell Squire, president of the No Vote to No Tax League, wrote a letter to the assessors. It declares her intention of not apologizing for being a woman. Imagine that, not apologizing for being a woman. So long as the county of Cook in the state of Illinois, United States of America hands me a tax schedule on the grounds that I am a citizen of Illinois and must pay my fair share, and then refuses me a ballot on the grounds that I am a woman, so long will I refuse. If, too, in the sight of the state only male brains are capable of solving intricate problems of politics and government, I decline to worry my female brain to solve the problem of how that government is to meet its bills. I was born a woman. No prayers will change the fact, and I refuse to apologize for being what I am, or to make excuses for the kind of body the Creator gave me. Therefore, I absolutely refuse to aid or support the government that dishonors and demeans my womanhood. Yours. Very courteously, Bell Squire. Shoot, I don't need to tell you who won that fight in the end, Miss Squire or Mr. O'Connell. Bell hasn't paid a cent of property taxes in two years. And she won't, not until women get the vote. Our next speaker on the suffrage car will be none other than the young woman we recently voted our best reformer, Chicago's own Virginia Brooks.
Virginia Brooks once called us the rottenest city in America. Says she won't stop until she's held every crook and grafter and grifter and human trafficker run out of town or thrown in jail. They call her the Joan of Arc of Calumet City because when she hears of a young girl who's been trafficked or abused or sold into some kind of economic slavery, she goes in there herself and pulls them out of harm's way. She's busted into the biggest bordellos and brothels and the dankest boarding houses, not to mention shut down half the taverns in Calumet. And she's still in her 20s. Ladies, allow me to share with you a heartbreaking letter sent to me by a worried mother in the southern part of Illinois, a town with less than 3,000 inhabitants. Here's what the letter said. Miss Brooks, I am writing to ask you to help me. Six months ago, my girl ran away from home. I guess she was tired of the farm, tired of being cooped up in this small town, because in the note she left, she said she wanted to see the city, the restaurants, the lights, the shop windows, and the people. Two weeks after she ran away, a postal came. Mary, that is her name, said she had found work in Chicago. She didn't send an address. Maybe she thought we would send after her. We've had no word since then. Miss Brooks, maybe you don't know what a mother's sorrow is. Day and night I am praying to God to send my Mary back to me. If only I knew where to reach her. The thought that she is hungry, sick, and suffering is breaking my heart, and I am powerless to help her. Can't you do something? Can't you find her for me? I'm sending you her picture, the one she had taken just before she graduated, signed, A Broken-Hearted Mother. For many months, I have been receiving letters from mothers in all parts of the country asking me to lend my aid in locating their lost daughters. All of the letters said that the girl had run to the city and then nothing more had been heard of her. The next morning at breakfast, my own mother handed me a newspaper. On the front page was an account of a pretty girl's suicide in a Southside rooming house. The description haunted me until I visited a Wabash Avenue morgue where her body lay, another girl adrift in Chicago taken tragically too early. I have seen men held in high public estimation use every technicality, every unfair advantage to keep scoundrels from the prison doors. Until my righteous indignation cries out, there is no justice in the courts. The laws are framed to shelter thieves. I have seen the beginnings of temptation come to young officers on the police force in Chicago. I have watched indifference grow upon them as their hands seize upon tainted dollars. Sometimes when I consider the task I have set myself in telling the conditions I have seen in my encounters in and around Chicago, my heart almost fails me and my spirit revolts. Will it do any good? But there are now hundreds of women respectably employed in Chicago thanks to women whose work is done quietly and effectively. These women are not known as philanthropists or crusaders. They are kept out of the limelight so that they may be more effective in their work. It is thanks to the indefatigable patience of these good women that so many girls are brought from bondage, brought out of darkness. I believe we've entered a sort of tunnel, ladies. Back into light. Now you take your average Pullman car stuffed to the gills with guys, and you'd have enough cigar smoke and cheap liquor to choke a horse. 
But the suffs are giving speeches instead of draining beers, and I, for one, will be there to hear every last one of them. Now, if you're a black woman like our Ida B. Wells Barnett, you'll get your turn at the bully pulpit, sure. But you mostly got to give your speeches to your own kind, or else late at night, to people like me, people whose job it is to listen. Truth is, Mrs. Barnett is as fine a writer as any newspaper man in Chicago, bar none. Before she came up north, she edited her own newspaper down in Memphis and published a handful of books. Trouble is, some of the bigwigs at the National Suffrage Association don't want a smart literary black woman fighting for their cause, lest she damage the cause in the eyes of the white southerners. I suppose I could see why they'd be scared. Mrs. Barnett knows a dirty little secret that the land of Lincoln has been mighty cruel at times to our citizens of color. But you're better off hearing straight from her than you are from me. In June 1893, one of our largest cities was startled with the cry that a white woman had been assaulted by a colored tramp. After he was arrested, the alleged victim did not see him to identify him. He was presumed to be guilty. Now the mob gathered, went to the jail, met with no resistance, and dragged him out, tearing every stitch of clothing from his back, and then hanged him to a telegraph pole. Not one of the dozens of men prominent in that murder have suffered a whit more of an inconvenience for the butchery of that man than they would have suffered for shooting a dog. Illinois which grants us the immortal heroes Lincoln, Grant, and Logan have trailed its banner in the dust, dyed its hands red in the blood of a man that had not been proven guilty of a crime. This lesson teaches us one that every African-American should ponder well, is that a Winchester rifle deserves a place of honor in every black home. And it should give us that protection, one that the law refuses to give, because when the white man he knows he runs as great a risk of biting the dust every time his African-American victim does. He will have greater respect for African-American life. And the more that the African-American cringes and yields and begs, the more he is insulted, outraged, and lynched. The flower of the 19th century civilization of the American people was the abolition of slavery. The infantizement of man here at last was the practice of precept with true democracy, with the Declaration of Independence, the golden rule, the reproach and disgrace of the 20th century is that the American people were permitted to nullify this glorious achievement to make the 14th and the 15th Amendment to the Constitution playthings a mockery, a byword, an absolute dead letter in the Constitution of the United States. Now, one-third of the states makes and enforces these laws that abridge the American people. And although the Constitution specially says not to do so, yes, they do indeed deprive persons of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness without due process of law. Now, ladies and gentlemen, 
with no sacredness of the ballot, there can be no sacredness of human life itself. For if the strong one can take the weak one's ballot when it suits his purpose to do so, he will take his life also. Some folks say the motion of a rail car in the night will rock you to sleep like a child in its mother's arms. Not me. After hearing a speech like that, you gotta be a hard-hearted son of a bitch not to lay awake thinking about the injustice of it. If that doesn't trouble your dream, Chicago, I don't know what will. Let me tell you, that train was hot with controversy by the time it steamed across the state border into Indiana. Suffrage party splits over Miss. Bell Squire starts it. Illinois delegation at odds within hour after train leaves Chicago. Her insistence on addressing spinsters as Misses roils both maids and matrons. I would like to know why women who are working for equal rights have not the right to take the title Misses. When a woman reaches years of maturity, she has a right to this title, even if she is not married. Here we are, 65 women spending $2,000 to go to Washington to gain equal rights. Here is a right that can be had for the taking. It does not cost a cent. I move we adopt the following resolution. Resolved that every unmarried woman over 18 years of age adopt the title Mrs. Well, you can imagine how Bell's resolution went down with the married women on the train. Like a ton of bricks. One of the married ones pipes up and says she objects to maidens taking the hard-won title Mrs. Parading on women's preserves, as she puts it. I'm telling you, some of those suffragettes can turn a phrase better than most of us newspaper men when the spirit moves them. That dinner car was already boiling over when Virginia Brooks stirred the pot even further. We've had too much discrimination between the sexes. I vote that all unmarried women take the title Mr. Damn if she didn't bring that pot to a screaming boil. Eventually, they all simmered down, and they called for a vote of all the unmarried marchers on the car asking if they preferred the traditional Miss for unmarried women. Miss won with eight votes, followed by four votes for Mrs. and two votes for Mr. Well, after my article on the Mrs. controversy ran in the trip, the letters poured in from women all across the Midwest. Here's one from Anne Heblett, who writes, Allow me to suggest to Belle Squire that instead of adopting the title Mrs., she instead use the title Madam. Madam furnished a dignified address to a stranger, which no other does, a thing which makes for politeness. By all means, let us confine Miss as a title for schoolgirls. Let us all address each other as Madam, and the reform is accomplished. Maybe the ladies have good reason to cry foul. After all, a man is a mister his whole life. There's no way of telling from his calling card whether he's single, married, divorced, or widower. So why should an unmarried, seasoned woman like Miss, oh, Mrs. 
Belle Squire, have to share a title with schoolgirls in pigtails. Tomorrow's the date of the first mass women's march on Washington, 1913. Just about every state in the Union's got a contingent steaming in. Illinois's got an army of 65 women with, you guessed it, Bell Squire and Virginia Brooks front and center in yet another controversy. This one involving their good friend, Ida Wells Barnett. Here's the scoop. Grace Trout, the president of our state suffrage association, comes running into the room saying how some of the women from the southern states have refused to take part in the march if a Negro woman, like Mrs. Barnett, is allowed to walk with the Illinois contingent. I can tell you Miss Brooks was having none of what Miss Trout was saying. It is entirely undemocratic. This parade was intended to march for equal rights. It would be autocratic to exclude men or women of color. We should let Miss Barnett walk with our delegation. If the women of other states lack the moral courage, we should show them that we are not afraid of public opinion. We should stand by our principles. If not, the parade will be a farce. I will not march unless I can do it under the Illinois banner. Now, when I was asked to come down here, I was asked to march with the fellow women of my state, and I intend to do so. Either I march with you, or not at all. I am not personally doing this for recognition. I am doing it for the benefit of my race. It is time that Illinois recognized the colored woman as a political equal. You could hear a pin drop after Ida was through. Then, Bell Squire, who's been sick as a dog since the suffrage special rolled into DC, speaks up from her chair in the back of the room. If you are forced to walk in the color delegation at the back of the march, Mrs. Barnett, I'll walk at your side. I'll go with you. It would be a disgrace for Illinois women to let Miss Barnett walk alone. This parade is intended to show a woman's demand for the great principles of democracy. That's what I mean when I say Chicago women got more steel in them than half our skyscrapers. It's one thing to stand up to a mob of men who think women ought to stay home in the kitchen. But it's another to stand up against your sister suffragettes when they're on the wrong side of history and democracy. Whatever unity was left in that room looked like it was about to fray like a piece of yarn until Bell Squire reminded the whole lot of them what they'd all come for. Ladies, man has forgotten, if indeed he ever knew or realized it, the part that women had played in the ages far behind them that he had indeed usurped her superiority, claiming her inventions as his own, not understanding that she was the mother of industry, the mother of civilization, the great conservator of life and progress, the mother of humanity itself. Despising, glorifying, bewailing, belittling, and ridiculing the strength of the weakness which drew him to her, he has despised her, maltreated her, enslaved her, loved her, fled from her, hated her, cherished her, and sometimes worshipped her. And in his supreme egoism, 
In the all-sufficiency of his own rights and his own reasoning, he conceived in the early days the idea that she was created expressly for him, for his use, his comfort by an all-wise and beneficent God. Perhaps it was in the nature of things or in the order of nature that he usurped all sorts of authority, domestic, political, ecclesiastical, moral, and civil. In his superb conceit, he designated the creator of the universe as father and limited the great unknown to his own sex alone. Tribe, nation, empire, Chieftain, king, emperor, democracy, aristocracy, republic, free man, master, slave, lord, serf, monogamy, polyandry, polygamy, concubinage, and monogamy again, in outward form at least, everywhere. There was thirst for power, some imposition of authority divine or human. Everywhere the human mind was chained, or an effort made to chain it, and allegiance was demanded from those below to someone or something above, to king, priest, noble, to lord, knight, master, to husband, to father, to state, to church. The Hebrew name Jehovah was said to have been originally a double-sexed word, meaning father-mother. Ladies, that government is best which unites the wisdom of women with the wisdom of men. March 3rd, 1913, the date of the first mass women's march on Washington, D.C. Picture it, trains rolling in every five minutes from all across the nation. An estimated 150,000 people arriving today alone, 100,000 of them to watch the women march into history. It's two o'clock on the dot, and two of the Illinois delegation's most important women Bell Squire and Ida Wells Barnett have gone missing. Word on the street says Bell's too sick to join the march, and Ida, well, her exact whereabouts are anyone's guess. I wouldn't blame her a bit if she skipped out. Think of it, back home in Chicago, the Alpha Suffrage Club, the only African-American suffrage club in the nation, spends months raising enough money to help Ida travel the 750 miles from Chicago to Washington. Then, when she gets here, the women at national headquarters tell her she's not allowed to march in the Illinois contingent on account of how her skin color will damage the national cause. I will not have one of our delegation having to walk alone as though she is a disgrace. I will find Mrs. Squire and Mrs. Barnett. Right then. Belle Squire shows up so sick she's almost got to drag herself to the starting line.
When Miss Brooks sees Belle, she practically tackles her, she's so happy. And the two of them march hand in hand down Pennsylvania Avenue like sister soldiers in the suffrage army of the Middle West. They'd march like that for no more than a few blocks when Ida leaps out of the crowd and steps into the marching column beside Mrs. Squire and Miss Brooks. It's as if the three of them had planned it all along. And they had. When the march is over, the women at the National Suffrage Organizations are miffed at Bell's and Virginia's sleight of hand, but it's too late. It's history. I guess what I mean to say is history has a way of coming for us, even when we try to plug our ears and run from it. Bell, Virginia, and Ida opened up their ears and their hearts and met it head on. We are the land of Lincoln, after all. And that's a title to live up to, even when the way forward looks dark or uncertain. Afterwards, the whole shooting Illinois contingent gathers on the National Mall, whooping and hollering and making sure they give credit where credit is due. They pass a resolution thanking the Ohio Baltimore Railroad for providing the suffered special. Just when it looks like they're about done giving thanks, they pass one more resolution. And this one, this one gets me right there. Resolved. The Illinois delegation would like to thank the Chicago Tribune for sending a special representative to Washington. <laughs> a journalist prides himself on staying neutral. But spend a few days with women like these, and you can't help but feel the angels of your better nature spreading their wings. I'm proud to say I was a man among marching women. Almost four months have passed since Belle and Virginia and the rest of the Illinois contingent made headlines at the Women's Rights March in Washington. And every blessed day since, Ida's been fighting to remind the racists and the sexists in the State House down in Springfield that true justice must be colorblind. Virginia's enrolled herself in college for the fall, though that hasn't stopped her from rescuing more of her girls adrift in Chicago. And Belle, after she and Miss Brooks locked arms with Ida and marched their way down Pennsylvania Avenue into the history books, well, she marched her way into the pages of the Tribune, too, writing a piece for us on how she'd rather have a vote than a husband. I want a vote. It's more dependable than a husband. A vote is always an asset, for it represents dignity and power. A husband often robs a woman of these. The vote is more necessary to a woman than a husband. It raises her wages, her dignity, and her position in the political world as well as in society. It makes her a formidable power to be reckoned with. On the other hand, when a woman acquires a husband, her wages may be considerably lessened and her position in the world appreciably lowered. I am sure I could manage a vote 
much easier than I could a husband. The vote is always a good thing to have. It does not depreciate in value. Not long after Bell's peace ran in the trip, I'm with the suffragettes to watch Governor Dunn sign the Illinois Suffrage Bill into law. June 26th, 1913, 9.54 a.m. The suffs dance a jig right there in the governor's office. No fooling. With one stroke of his pen, Governor Dunn makes Illinois, not New York, or Massachusetts, or Pennsylvania, or any of the other proud old colonies out east. The first east of the Mississippi River to grant women the vote. All 1,500,000 of them. Mothers and daughters, granddaughters and grandmothers, nieces and aunts, finally emancipated. In signing the bill, Governor Dunn says, and I quote, I put aside absolutely all questions of politics in signing this measure. I signed it only because I believed it to be right. I am happy in the thought that I have done what my conscience dictated. A politician with a conscience. Now there's a headline worth writing. When word reaches Jane Addams at the International Suffrage Conference in Budapest, the women there break out into wild applause. Others openly weep. The whole world cheers for the land of Lincoln. In the pages of the Trib, Marion Walters writes, Illinois' victory will push the women's suffrage movement forward in every country in the world where women are working and waiting to have justice accorded them by men. Not everyone's happy, of course. Illinois women can now vote in presidential elections, mayor, alderman, and just about every local office you can think of. But they still can't vote for governor, state representatives, or Congress. Bell Squire declares she won't pay a cent of property taxes until women have more than half a vote. And she sticks to it whole hog. Many years from now, when Illinois celebrates her bicentennial, I expect there will be statues of Bell Squire, Virginia Brooks, and Ida Wells Barnett standing right alongside the great emancipators down in Springfield. And if there aren't, why then, maybe we need the women of the future to take a cue from Bell and stop paying their taxes. After all, justice is due them. Don't you think? <laughs>